Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. And this morning is a parable that he told about resources and what we do with them. I wonder whether you've ever been asked to take responsibility for something. Probably temporarily, maybe a houseplant, someone's pet, someone's children, your own younger sibling maybe. Um, How did you feel about it? Did it feel easy? Did it feel like something you could breeze through or did you feel the weight of it? I was recently asked to babysit for somebody's three children and um, managed to almost poison their cat with chocolate in the process of doing the babysitting. They ate some chocolates were on the side. It was that moment of, I didn't think I was looking after the cats as well. I do normally not poison people's cats if you would like me to cat sit though, but I don't have any pets of my own. There's probably a reason for that. Today's passage is a story that Jesus told about a master who went away and entrusted his servants with taking care of business in his absence. So let's read the passage. It's Luke 19, uh, verses 11 to 27. If you've got a Bible, you can read from your own copy or it will come up on the screens behind. So just before this has been a story about Jesus meeting a local tax collector called Zacchaeus. And there's this wonderful story of him meeting Jesus, having his life completely transformed and changing how the way he handles money. And Jesus says, today salvation's come to this house. And then we get to our bit. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, an amount of money, and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he'd given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, you reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit, reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you, everyone who has, more will be given to them. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in front of me. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word is living, it's active in our hearts, and when we read it and we open our hearts to you, you speak about yourself, you give us revelation, and you lead our lives. We ask that you would do that this morning. Amen. So in order for us to understand why Jesus told this particular story, we need to rewind a little bit through Luke's gospel to that bit I mentioned before about him meeting this tax collector, Zacchaeus. 
People were getting very excited that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God's promised king and that he was about to win this great victory and um, release them from their Roman oppressors and restore this golden age of peace and prosperity for Israel, just as all those prophecies foretold in their scriptures. And Jesus is coming near to Jerusalem and he knows that they think this kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. It's going to be glorious, it's going to be victory. And he wants them to know that it isn't going to look like they expect. With 2,000 years of hindsight, we know that God's perfect kingdom didn't arrive in that moment in the way they expected. And in fact, Jesus died, was resurrected, ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and we're still waiting for the king to return. So actually, we also need to know how to live in the time in between. Oh, it's moved my writing for me. It's a graphic from Derek Morphew, and his name is in the middle of the screen now. It was at the bottom. So you can see along the bottom is the age that we're living in. And all those things, those Jesus coming, Jesus dying, Jesus ascending to heaven and Pentecost, they're the signs of the age to come beginning. So this life of the coming ages that goes on forever and ever and ever, and I haven't got enough paper for it, that's going on this way. And the age to come is down here. But the problem is, we haven't got there yet, have we? We're still here. We've got sort of two running simultaneously, but actually this one is going to come to a big full stop. And so actually as disciples of Jesus, he's invited us to join this timeline up here that goes on forever. But we still need to live in the gap in between until the king returns. So actually this is a parable that we need to hear as much as that ancient audience that he was speaking to. So going back to the parable, this political situation of someone going off to get power and coming back seems a bit weird to us, but it was really normal to them because there was often no clear line of succession. You didn't know who was going to become the next ruler. So you had to go and apply to this big governing authority, maybe the emperor, to give you power to rule, and then they rubber-stamped it and people had to do what you say. In fact, this very situation has happened to them quite recently. So Herod's son, Herod the Great, um, he went to Rome to get his authority rubber-stamped, and he was followed by a delegation of unhappy people going, we do not want this guy. So that's where the, the, sort of, um, the context comes from here. But imagine being one of, so the guy who went off was called Archelaus, imagine being one of his inner circle, his trusted friends, at the point he was yet to be confirmed, but he was pretty sure it was going to happen. There was actually a very real risk in aligning yourself with somebody whose kingship was yet to be approved, because what if somebody else became king? You wouldn't exactly be first on the list of invited, honoured guests if you'd backed the opposition. And this is the dilemma that faces the servants who are left behind while the master is away. At this point, I want to say that if something sounds really profound, it's probably because I've been reading this book, well, and the Holy Spirit, but this is a brilliant book written by a guy called Kenneth Bailey who lived in the Middle East for years and writes about how we hear the parables through our cultural lens and maybe how we need to rehear them through the lens of the ancient Middle East or even um, more modern. Um, we naturally understand our Bibles through the lens of the place we live in. So our culture is pretty driven by money and capitalism and it's very normal to think of success being making a profit, gaining wealth. And so we read this parable and it seems to be about savviness with money and gaining wealth um, and giving the master a bumper return on the money. But actually it's not about capitalism. I want to suggest it's actually about faithfulness. It's actually about loyalty and about knowing which king you're serving. So I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the king will return. 
The king has given us gifts, and the king asks us to be faithful. So first of all, the king will return. The allegiance of the servants in the parable would have been tested during the nobleman's absence. The instruction he gives them just before leaving is interesting. Bailey says the meaning of verse 13 when he says engage in business is not just engage in business until I get back, a time thing. It's engage in business because I'm returning or in light of the fact that I'm returning. So their whole business enterprise was to be conducted in the knowledge that it was the master's business and that he was going to come back. So when he came back, he wanted to know what they'd been up to, right? Verse 15, you can imagine him pulling out the account books, having a look at the names written down, what business they'd been doing, wanting to see whether the servant had kept their allegiance to him pretty close to the chest, just done business quietly with one or two people, or whether they'd had contracts with everyone in town. Were they open about their allegiance to him, about their sureness, their faith that he was the true king? Were they happy to be known as his men? It would have been a measure of how confident they were in him. Now, we have a sure hope that our king will return. The New Testament from the Gospels all the way through to Revelation is peppered with these images and promises about the return of Jesus as king and what his new kingdom is going to be like. And if you add to that all the Old Testament imagery and promises about the wonder and the beauty of God's new kingdom... Actually, that's the lens through which we should be viewing life every day. The Bible that I tend to use with my little one at the moment is this one, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I just thought I'd read you a little section. So it's, it's their version of a part of Revelation, of the picture of God's new kingdom. It says, the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yeah, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I've wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look, I'm making everything new. The way we decide to live our days in that waiting time in between is directly influenced by how conscious we are of the age to come. And saying it like that sounds like it's something that's going to happen way in the future, but we don't know when it's going to be. And also, some of that age to come is breaking through all the time, isn't it? That's how we live as people of the age to come, is actually we know that the age to come has been started already by Jesus. It's just not fully here yet. So we live as people of hope and promise, waiting and hoping and working with God to bring some of that now. Bill Johnson says in his book, Manifesto for a Normal Christian Life, you and I will always reflect the nature of the world we're most aware of. What you live conscious of is what you'll reproduce in the world around you. So as you go about everyday life, who is it you're following and what reality are you most conscious of? Where does your loyalty lie? It's hard because coffee shops and traffic jams and job interviews feel much more imminent than God's inbreaking eternal kingdom. And that's why we need scripture, quite honestly, isn't it? For lots of things, but for that as well, it's perspective and revelation that we need because they are the words of God to remind us who we are and why we're here and of his reality. 
I've just finished, I feel like I'm starting a library down here, but I've just finished a book um, called The Second Mountain by a guy called David Brooks. And I've found it really helpful. I suspect he's a Christian, in fact, I don't know, he's part of his faith story is part of the book, but it's not the main point of it. But he talks about the fact that you climb this first mountain of success and achievement, and then you go, what now? What next? And this is called The Second Mountain, about um, the things you commit yourself to, the things you give your life to in terms of faith and community. Um, and relationships. It's a good read, but I wanted to read you just one quote from it. He says, consider the possibility that a creature of infinite love has made a promise to us. Consider the possibility that we're the ones committed to, the objects of an infinite commitment, and that the commitment is to redeem us and bring us home. That is why religion is hope. So scripture is about reorienting our perspective and reminding us where reality lies. God reminds us through scripture that he's got a wonderful plan to redeem the whole world and beckon his children home and make the world new again. And actually that our actions here and now are powerful when we partner with him to influence how that comes into being. We're in the in-between time. We're following a king whose authority to rule is certain, but his kingdom isn't fully established yet. So I guess there are two questions for us imminently. Is One, is your, is your loyalty, is your allegiance to Jesus yet? Have you made that first leap of faith in going, yes, you are my king, I will follow you, and what you say about reality, that's the way I want to live. Maybe actually this morning, it's a first invitation, it's now's the time. He's beckoning you closer and inviting you to take a first step of faith in following him. But I think there's something for me when I read this story about the servants about being openly loyal to Jesus. When those servants were doing business, were they open about their allegiance to the master? The way we operate in life, does it reflect the true reality we say we believe in? Does it reflect the fact that we do believe that God's kingdom is coming increasingly and one day it will come fully? Our discipleship needs to touch not just our belief system, but the way we use our time and our resources and our skills, and we're going to talk a bit more about that in a moment. But it does take courage to do that in an open way. So the king will return. The king has given us gifts. So this parable starts with quite astounding generosity, really. Each of the servants is given this thing called a mina, which they think is about three months' um, wages for full-time work. So do some maths in your head, but that's, that's quite a lot of large amount of money. And we don't know whether they get to keep it or not. It doesn't really say, but we do know that one of the servants has their mina taken from them at the end. So I suppose they probably did get to keep it. It's a generous gift. I wanted us to think a little bit about what gifts we receive from God. When we look at the book of James in the New Testament, he tells that, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift I think when we think of stewardship or resources, we automatically think of money or stuff, which they're a good place to start. But I wanted to, um, this is the risky moment because you might say nothing, but I want to try and get you to list with me some of those good and perfect gifts. Just shout a few out. What gifts has God given you, us? Let's give us something to work from here. What have you got? Yeah, great. Friendships, relationships, people. Any more? Fab, thank you. Music, community action. 
Yeah? Great. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Time. Nice big one. Say that again. Earth. Thank you. The place where we live. Oh, love. Sorry, we'll have that one as well. That feels <laughs> <Everybody's> good. <laughs> Anymore. It's a good starter. Faith. Yeah, the Bible's very clear. Faith comes as a gift of God. Okay. Security. Thank you. Grant, I'm going to stop you there. You can make some more lists. All right, good start of a 10. So I think it's helpful to reflect on these as gifts. That those are a sign of our king's generosity to us, not things we've earned. We're all actually in the position of the servants. We're starting off with a generous amount with which to do business. I think there's a very real risk that comparison can tell us that we don't have enough to get going because we haven't got money in the bank, a good education, the right kind of personality to be a steward for the master. But actually, you don't need those things. You don't need um, a house of your own, a vocational calling that you received when you were three in a blinding flash of light. To start investing in God's kingdom, he's given you what you need. He's given it to you already. It's just a case of getting going. And the real conviction moment for me is that none of that list belongs to me. I find that really hard because our culture, well, life just works on the basis that some things are mine, right? They're just temporarily given for me to be faithful with. In our house, I've lost count of the number of generally quite small items that used to be mine that have been co-opted and now belong to my daughter. She doesn't have access to my wardrobe yet. She's a bit small. It's coming, I know. Um, I know they still belong to me. But she's adamant she's had them long enough, they're hers. And I often behave like that with God. I lose track of the fact that just because I've had it for 37 years doesn't actually make it mine. It's all his, and it's always been his. It always will be. And he's a God of abundance who is able to provide everything I need. I don't need to keep it all as mine. And the thing that can sometimes really help with this, I think, loosening that grip is thankfulness, is that spiritual habit or discipline of gratitude and thankfulness because when we thank God for something we let go we don't hold it so tightly we remind ourselves that he's the source of that good thing it frees us up to live openly and generously so I think something about this is something about thankfulness and accepting the God the gifts that God has given you but knowing that they've always come from him if you journal if you um do something like an examine or a review of the day before bedtime, then often thankfulness is something that can be easily built into that. Um, there's a book that I've come across in the past called A Thousand Gifts. There might be a picture up there. By a lady called Anne Voskamp. Um, and she talks quite powerfully about thinking, learning to think about the gifts that have been given to you. So not just the easy ones that come to mind, but actually as she becomes more practiced in um, thankfulness and thanking God, that she becomes able to thank God even for things that feel really difficult, which I think is something we all struggle with. And I think there's something around a repentance about calling stuff ours, um, something that God wants to do in our hearts to just loosen the grip of something feeling like it belongs to us and we're going to hold it tight. 
So he's returning, he gives us gifts, and he asks us to be faithful. So I'd like us to notice how the king responds to his servants at the end of the parable. He doesn't say, well done, good servants, your excellent business plans and savvy negotiation have yielded a huge profit. I mean, one guy earned 10 times as much. He must have been a pretty good businessman. But God is not a heavenly Alan Sugar in that sense. He's not wanting just return, or at least not in the way we understand it. He says, well done, good servant, you've been faithful. Just as Mother Teresa is famously quoted as saying, God has not called me to be successful. He's called me to be faithful. I mean, look what kind of impact you can create if you just go faithful, <laughs> if you want to define success. But also notice that the reward for, for faithfulness in this, in this parable is that the master gives the servants not privilege or status just by itself, but further responsibility. Growing in faithfulness often means that God will trust us with more, just as he says at the end, take it from him, give it to the one who has more. It's a hard one to get your head around, but there's some kind of dynamic here around the more we grow in faithfulness with God, the more we trust him and step out, the more he entrusts us with. Sometimes that might look like wealth or influence, but I don't think it's guaranteed in any way. God just doesn't value those things the same way we do. And the third servant is found out. But the cause of the master's displeasure is not that there's no financial success, per se. It's that his actions in keeping this money hidden safely away are the actions of a man who actually really didn't believe his master would return as king at all. He's saying it's because he's scared of the master. But actually, when we follow his logic through, if he really thought the master basically a thief, you took what you didn't sow, you reaped what you didn't sow, then actually he would have known that he wouldn't have cared about something like the Jewish law on getting interest either, and thus the thing of you should have put it in the bank. This isn't really about what he thinks about the master's character, it's the fact he wasn't sure he'd come back at all. He's keeping himself safe. So it's a faithfulness thing. So in order to be faithful, we do have to do something. We can't just go, oh, well, thank you, Lord, for all these lovely gifts. You have to do something with them. It's a call to action. But in order to use some things well, you might need to have a think about how to equip yourself or equip ourselves as a community, maybe, think corporately. Um, sometimes you need some new knowledge, some new ideas. I wonder whether there's anything you look at on that list and you think, I have no idea how to use that for God. I just honestly don't know. I think some of, them are, some of them come easier to us individually than others do. So you might think, um, actually, I am flying with hospitality and using my space or using the areas I have influence in to be hospitable, to be welcoming. Other people might go, I really struggle to know how even to use the space I've got in a shared house, whatever it is. So I think there will be things that come easier than others. But actually, there are some brilliant resources we've got, and I think the first one is each other. I mean, we've got a room full of how many people here? A couple of hundred, 150? Of people's different talents and strengths and ideas and life experiences. And I think the first thing I'd do is, if you're looking at something like that, going, I don't know how to use my time for God, look around and find somebody who does it brilliantly, or at least better than you do, and go talk to them. Because I think God uses his church as a resource for each other, so we, we equip each other in that sense. But there might be things on here like um, using your strengths, finding out what you're good at, 
that you think, you know what, I could really do with some help with this, or money, finances, parenting, I mean, earth, environment, you, you name it, there will be things that you think, oh, I just need to learn about this. There are loads of brilliant resources out there, um, things like, I mean, even getting feedback from others, but Clifton Strengths, so strengths assessments of who you are as a person, resources from the people like Parenting for Faith, you can, you can spend some time learning. And I think that is a godly and a worshipful thing to do. If God gives you a gift, he wants you to use it well. The risk is that we get stuck there in the equipping mode. We get stuck in discovery and learning mode. And it's fascinating and, oh my goodness, we can become experts in whatever it is. But we risk becoming the servant still who kept it all wrapped up in a bit of cloth. He knew exactly what was in there. He just did nothing with it. It's very safe. We hedge our bets. We're very well informed. But we never grow and we never take any risks. And we miss out on the opportunity to see what God wants to do. I didn't know these guys were going to be here this morning, but actually I was thinking back about how this church started with Andrew and his brother David McNeil, and they started in somebody's, well, in their parents' front room. And they started as a small group, and they worshipped together, and they dreamed of God changing the city. And I have calculated it from the website 35 years later. Um, that small group is now several congregations, and it's not just the people in church now, it's the people who've come through, been discipled, and moved on into other places. It's other churches that have been planted. The there are this huge impact from that, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of lives changed. And that growth is partly as a result of the faithful leadership that these guys have given that. But it's also hundreds of thousands of ways in which individuals have taken action. And they've used the resources that God has given them, be that a front room for a house group, be that welcoming newcomers, give them, be that money. Lots and lots and lots of different ways, just like they were saying on that video about serving, um, it's the chance to get stuck in and give yourself. Or more locally, tuck in Tuesday. You know, it could have started with just an idea that never went anywhere, but a combination of a local church who would give us space and people who would cook food and people who would play games with the kids means it becomes something that has impact. So, the kicker, what next? What next for you? I think that list or any list in our head can feel a bit overwhelming when we start talking about what you do with what God's given you. It can feel like a massive guilt trip or it feels like it's never ending. You know, how, how good do I have to be? How much do I have to give? Where do you start? Where do you stop? I think we need to put all of this in the context of God speaking to the whole of his church because we are a community between us. God will cover all the bases. It's a collective effort. I find the verses in Romans 12 really helpful for framing this call to action. Uh, Romans 12, starting at verse 6, says, In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So, if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is encouraging others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So I think we come full circle. And I, my question to you is, what gifts have you been given? And what could you do with them to faithfully give back to the God 
who gave them to you. You don't have to do everything. It's fine to focus a little bit. What I'd like to do just in a few minutes is um, spend just maybe three or four minutes listening to the nudges that God is giving you this morning. It may have been while I'm talking, you're going, ooh, that thing's stirring again. Or, ooh, I wonder what it would look like to use this. Those things can be the Holy Spirit's promptings as you're listening and as you're hearing scripture. So um, some of you will be paper people. There, is, there are some bits of paper on the, the inside of the tables here. Unfortunately, I planned as far as finding paper and couldn't find then enough pens. So there are some pens in a box here, or some of you will probably have some, or you can write it on a phone. But just some, a few little bullet points. It doesn't have to be a grand life plan, but just something to get us moving, something to take action with. I just want you to really imagine what kind of impact we could have as a community of faith, as the, the community of God, at least a very small part of it, if we were using all of these kind of gifts for King Jesus. Just imagine the ripples into schools and businesses and playgrounds and politics, hospitals. There's just this itchy feeling in me this morning of, oh, that God would breathe on us and wake us up about this. That he would wake our desires and our dreams again and just breathe holy creativity in a sense of what ideas is he giving you? Where is he taking you? God is issuing an invitation this morning to a life of adventure. Because just as Jesus walked through Galilee, inviting disciples to follow me, he's inviting you to invest your whole being with him. Inviting you to a life of deep commitment, where you receive his gifts with gratitude and you joyfully invest them back into the kingdom. And then, then you get front row seats to see what the God of the universe is doing all around you because you're in on the action. Right at the very beginning of creation, we were commissioned to be stewards, those who care for what they've been given. Called to bring life, called to bring flourishing wherever we have influence. So God is saying to us all this morning, I think, it's time to engage in business because I'm returning. Take what I've given you and spend it for my kingdom. We have a king who's returning, and until then, he has given us gifts to use faithfully for him. So I just want to spend um, a couple of moments, Andy's going to play a little bit, spend a few moments just pondering, what is God speaking to you about? What gifts has he given you? Just pick one, maybe, and say, okay, that's the gift. Do I need to equip myself? What resources do I need? People, information, ideas, what do I need? And then what next? God, would you come and speak to us and um, fill us with joyful creativity this morning and a sense of purpose about where you're leading us individually and a confidence that you're doing something really quite remarkable through your church. Would you give us nudges and um, ideas this morning? We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.